immutability of God. And I have, uh, I want to read some text that I have here from the book Malachi, that very familiar one, 3.6. For I am Jehovah, I change not. And then in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verse 17 and verse 18, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Then another familiar passage is James, the first chapter, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now those are the texts that I find and there are, of course, many others, but these are so pointed that I will read them to you. Speaking on the immutability of God, I suppose that uh, a lot of you have come more or less uh, with a feeling that it would be dry. And yet, as I have said, I do not find theology dry, because theology is the study of God, and if God's dry then you'd better not go to heaven, for God will be the Lord and King and center of heaven and the magnet of attraction for all creatures. Now, the word immutable, of course, immutability means the state of being immutable, and immutable is the negative of, uh, of mutable. I haven't said anything yet, but I'll come to it. Uh, uh, in explaining in explaining what the word mutable means, it means subject to mutation, and mutation just means change. It's just a big word for change. So when you say that God is immutable, you say that God cannot change. About the, one of the best illustrations that I know of change is that of water and rain and mist and ice and sleet and snow. It was Shelley who wrote about the clouds. He said, uh, make letting the cloud do the speaking. Uh, the cloud said, I am the daughter of earth and water, the nursling of the sky. I pass through the pores of the ocean and shores. I change, but I cannot die. It's water today. It's, uh, it's mist tomorrow. It's cloud the next day. It's rain the next day. It's snow the next day. It's hail the next day, and so on. Now, that's change as we see it. It's the same thing taking different forms and changing. Well, now the scriptures say that there is no mutation possible in God. One version says, God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The big thing here is that God never differs from himself. People differ from themselves, and that's one of life's sickest pains, the instability of loved ones. 
the baby uh, is a baby now in your arms and uh, give it a few years and it wouldn't come to your arms at all. I remember our daughter as she was growing up, I used to kiss her a lot and when she got to be about 11, she said, don't kiss me in public, it embarrasses me. And uh, I had to stop it because she was changing. I wasn't changing. I still wanted to kiss her in public, but she didn't want to be kissed in public. She said it embarrassed her. Now, the odd thing about it, she'll be 22 uh, in a few days, and now she'll run up and kiss me without hesitation in the airport. She changed again. There are changes that are going on all the time. Personalities are changing, and uh, it can be a very terrible thing. The poet wrote, Oh, Lord, my heart is sick sick of this everlasting change, and life runs tediously quick through all its un, through its unresting race and varied range. But with God, there can be no change possible, because God said, I am Jehovah, I change not. Now, I believe in thinking, but I do not believe in thinking in order that I might believe. I believe in thinking because I believe. There is a vast difference there. Some of the evangelical rationalists today who are trying to explain everything philosophically, they think and then they try to build a faith upon what they've thought. But the fact is we ought to believe and then think because we believe. That was the basis of Anselm's great book called The Proslogium. He begins by saying that we think because we believe, not in order that we might believe. If you have to think in order to believe, that is, if you have to use your head in order to arrive at conclusions and then build your faith on the conclusions, you don't have a very sound faith. But if you believe it because God said it, then you have a sound uh, basis for your faith because God has backed what he has said with his character and your faith is resting upon the character of God. Then after that, you can take off into the wild blue yonder and do all the thinking you want to, and the more, the better. So I want this morning, uh, briefly here, to give you three reasons why God cannot change. I couldn't arrive at that conclusion that God doesn't change by these reasons, but God having said that he doesn't change, then I know why he doesn't change. Well... Now, God can't change because for any moral being to go from one position to another morally, for any moral being to go alter or change in any way, one of three things would have to take place. He would have to go from better to worse. And thank God that it is possible to change because we can go from worse to better. But uh, we can't conceive of God going from better to worse. Moral creatures do go from better to worse. You know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise, written by a man by the name of Robinson about a hundred years ago or so. Uh, there was a lady riding in a coach, in a, in a conveyance of some sort in England where this song originated, uh, shortly after, it, it, it wasn't sung yet, but it had gotten into the magazines or papers, and she had cut it out and had it in her purse. And uh, she was riding alongside of a man who was a stranger to her, and she struck up a conversation. And she said, you know, I have just found 
in a magazine one of the most beautiful hymns that I have ever heard. And she took it out of her purse and read it to the stranger. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. And uh, she noticed that he didn't respond, and she looked at him closely, and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, Madam, I am the poor unhappy wretch who wrote that song. I would give all that I possess if I could have back the glow of blessing I had when I wrote it. Now let's hope that he got it back shortly. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and even songwriters can backslide. But uh, the point I'm making here is that a good man can go from better to worse. But God, being eternal holiness, cannot do this. He couldn't do it and continue to be God. Because it's a creature word, this, this idea, a creature concept, this idea of going from better to worse, and it doesn't belong to the deity. God is uncreated holiness. He never began to be holy, and he'll never cease to be holy. He is holy, and that's it. I am that I am. He is holy because he is holy, and he doesn't explain it to anybody, neither does he account to anybody for it. He is a holy God, and he can never be anything else. And the moment you conceive of anything less than holy and try to make it God, you're thinking of something less than God. You're not thinking of God. Because as long as you think of God, you think of unchanging holiness. God cannot go from better to worse. Well then, a moral creature, in order to change, would have to go from worse to better. And I'm grateful to God that's possible. That is the story, that's the life story of all ransomed men. They went from worse to better. God makes bad men good. Spider Brother Brown's remark, I know what he meant, and I agree with him on what he meant, but he said that he didn't come, that God, the Lord didn't come to make bad men good, but he did. He came to make dead men alive, but he came to make people who are sinners stop sinning and begin to live a life of righteousness. God wants his people to live holy lives, and so he makes, takes bad men, drunk men, filthy mouth men, liars, cheaters, and all the rest, and he turns them into men who wouldn't lie and wouldn't cheat, clean, holy, good men. So he does make bad men good by making them alive and then working on them to change them. So it's possible to go from worse to better. But it's not possible for God to go from worse to better because when you think of worse, you don't think of God, you think of something else. God never was worse nor could be worse. God is what he is without degree. There is no change in God. Now, words that don't apply to God are such words as greater or lesser or more or older or younger. All such words as these are creature words, and they apply to the creature, but they don't apply to the Creator. It's possible for a man to be great or greater or less or to have more of something or less of something. Possible to be older. He never gets younger, but he does get older, and some men are younger than other men, so younger and older and less and more. All these words apply to the creatures, but they do not apply to God because God is absolute, and there are no degrees in absoluteness. And now take all these suffixes, uh, W-A-R-D, the word suffixes, backward, downward, upward, onward, forward. You can't apply them to God. You can to people. You can say, let us arise and go forward. 
meaning let us advance from where we now are to where we will be after we've advanced. But God filling all space is everywhere, so God can't go from one place to another. God holds the universe in his bosom, and there is no upward. God can't go up from where he is. How could God go up? Because God is already the pinnacle and apex of all upness, if there were such a word. And God can't go down. He can't go in any direction. God is the eternal God. He, he moves. He works. But it's within himself. So that we cannot say that God uh, goes backward or downward. Direction words apply to people or things, but never to God. God is already there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, God is there. If I go to the highest heights of heaven, God is there. Yea, if I make my bed in hell, even there God is, says the scriptures in the 139th Psalm. So God is everywhere. When you shoot the rocket with the man on board, and let's hope he'll be a Yankee. When they shoot the rocket with the man on board to some far off of a planet out yonder, and he lands and as it probably will light the cigarette uh, and puts down the flag, why, uh, God will already have been there, and uh, he hasn't moved beyond God. In him we live and move and have our being, don't forget that, so that you can take the wings of the morning and go at the speed of light 186,000 miles a second for an eternity, and you still wouldn't have advanced beyond the bounds of the God who has no bounds, for God contains all things. Therefore, God cannot possibly go from worse to better. But there is a third possibility of change in a moral creature, and that is to go from one sort of being to another. Now, there are orders of being in heaven. There are angels, archangels, seraphim, and cherubim. Then we also read of uh, principalities and powers and mights and dominions. And if uh, there's at least three in four or seven, there are seven orders of being that we know about. I don't say that limits it because there may be very many more. But uh, those creatures... Now, let's suppose that an archangel were transmuted from being an archangel to being a seraph. It would make a change, all right. Let's suppose a man were to undergo transmutation. Um, trans, uh, that is change. And uh, turn, be turned into a, a bird or something. Uh, they have a little game they play, and they ask you this. If you could change from being a human being... What kind of bird or animal would you like to be? And then they claim to tell your character by uh, the answer. If you say, I would like to be a lion, then that means all your lifetime you've been busy hoping that you could chew somebody up. You've got that kind of disposition. And uh, if you say, I'd like to be a canary bird, you're a gentle little lady that would love to sing, and so on. Well, I don't know whether that's so. And of course, you can't change. You can't transmute across from one being to another. Neither can God. God can't go from one kind of being to another. Now, I'd like to say this, and this is heavy theology, but I'll try to keep it light enough so that the humblest child can understand it, that when Jesus Christ became incarnated, he didn't change. Let us not think of him changing. Let us not think of God Almighty ever changing, for he can't. When Jesus Christ inhabited human flesh, he did not alter in any wise from what he was. He was equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, but he was less than the Father as touching his manhood. As a man, he was less than God. As the Son, he was equal with God. And the eternal, unchanging deity did not change when he became flesh. 
his nature did not change. That which is the essential Godhead did not change. He took on him the form of a man, and we saw him and touched him, John said, and our eyes beheld and our hands have handled that word of light. He was talking about the manhood of Jesus. But the Godhood of Jesus never changed. It's impossible for God to move across and become creature. Wouldn't that be a confusion impossible to dream that the uncreated, self-sufficient, self-existent creator who was before there was any creature should become a creature? If God should become a creature, what would happen to the upholding of the universe? A creature couldn't do it. It takes the eternal, uncreated God to hold up the created world. And so it's, it's, it's impossible, it's unthinkable. The human mind can't entertain the thought that that which is God should become that which is not God. So that God can never, the perfect and the absolute, cannot become other than it is. So God cannot change. Only that changes which is created. It changes by developing. But development is not possible in God because that would mean that somewhere out of God there was something God had to take in order to develop Take a little newborn baby. Dr. Brown said they were all little red things. Well, uh, we had two beautiful little ones, one a boy and one a girl. We had six boys and one girl. And one of our boys was as pretty when he was born as it's possible for a human thing to be. And our daughter wasn't bad. And uh, these, these tiny little things that begin to nurse, well, they develop. But they develop by receiving from out of themselves that which they didn't have and uh, assimilating it. That's development. But how can God receive out of himself, from out of himself, that which he didn't have? The great God in whom we live and move and have our being and who is the origin of all the things that are. It's impossible. God never matures. The Father is made of none, says the old Asian creed. The Father is made of none, neither begotten nor created. And so God cannot possibly change by developing. Neither can he mature. God was not born. Neither can he improve, as I have said. Neither can he deteriorate. So always think of God. Whatever God was, God is. And whatever God is and was, God will forever be. And there is no change in God. Thine own self forever filling with self-kindled flame. In thyself thou art distilling unctions without name. Without worshipping of creatures, without veiling of thy creatures, God always the same. Now, God always the same. And what God was, he still is. Now, you can always count on that. People change. You'll see a man who is an orthodox believer today and run him through that mortuary, that grist mill that we call liberal seminary, and he's likely to come out and stare coldly at you and say, I no longer believe in the miracles. He's a very learned fellow now, and he no longer believes in the miracles, nor the deity of Christ and the resurrection and a lot of things. He's changed. He has made a change. But God remains always the same. Anything God thought, he always thinks. Any way God was, he is now. Any way God thought and was and is, he will be worlds without end. His nature... And his attributes are eternally unchanging. Take the self-sufficiency of God. I preached a sermon on the self-sufficiency. I don't have time to do it here. I have about 20 sermons on the attributes. They say there are only seven, but I've already preached sermons on 20. And uh, the one of them, the self-sufficiency, I shocked a fellow one time, the head of, the, of a 
of a Christian group, he said, Oh, brother, you've got to be careful, he said, about telling people that God doesn't need them, that God is self-sufficient. What a kind of a God would it be if somebody would come rushing to my door at night and say, Told you, wake up, wake up, God needs you, he's in trouble out here. I would turn around and walk away from such a God forever. A God that's in trouble and has to have me to help him is no God that I can worship. The self-sufficient God contains in himself everything that he needs eternally world without end. And so I need God, but God doesn't need me. Self-sufficiency is an attribute of God, and it'll never change. God will never get old. Have you ever seen these great big strong men, great burly fellows? And today, and then you see them a few years later, and now they're getting old and bent and tired, and maybe their wife is helping them across the street. Well, they've changed. But never think that God shall lose his energy and power and grow old. God, the ageless one, the unchanging one, shall remain always, ever, after the stars have ceased to be. God will remain forever the same. And the God is the God of truth, and he is the God of justice, and he is the God of mercy and love. Now, let's talk about that little word love for a minute. You know that God never loved you any more than he does now, and he never lo- will never love you any less than he does now. He couldn't love you any more than he does now because God, being infinite, loves you with all the love there is. And if he loves you with all the love there is, he can't add to it. And being God, he can't take away from it. So that God loves you as much now as he did before the world was. And he, will, he loves you, will love you as much when the worlds are no more as he did before the world was and as he loves you now. The unchanging love of God, because God is unchanging, his love is unchanging. And his mercy is unchanging. And his grace is unchanging. Brother Cop told us, uh, the missionary to Congo, told us about a deacon over there. He was a fine man, but he had his limitations, as we all do. And one of the members of the church got uh, a little bit uh, recalcitrant, and they had to discipline him. And then he repented and got straightened out, and then it repeated three or four times, and finally the deacon called the church member in, and he said to him, Now he said, when you got converted, God gave me a little bottle of grace for you. And he said, I've just about used it up. He said, the time has just about come when the, uh, the grace is used up. No, no. The grace of God can't be used up because it is infinite, and infinite means it has no bounds and no limits. You ever try to stretch your brain by thinking of infinitude? Don't try it right after you've read Little Abner or listened to Bob Hope because you'd have a brain uh, tremor. But uh, think, of, think about infinitude. Think about that which is limitless. Poor us, poor us. We have our limits, and they're so pathetically small. That's why I wonder that anybody can ever boast, because when he takes a deep breath to boast, he may have a heart attack and not even get it boasted. And uh, he'll die before it gets done, you see. So we have our limitations, God knows. We all know something, but we're all ignorant on something else. We have our limitations, but God has none. And so the love of God has no limitations. Now, I can't preach on the, this other attribute, so I'll stick it in here because I want you to hear this. That when Christ died on the cross, it didn't make God love you anymore. Some people have an idea that God, a great angry, browed God with great heavy knuckles and an old-fashioned caveman uh, 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 stick in his hand with a, a club in his hand, he comes rushing at the sinner. 
And Jesus Christ interposes himself between an angry God and the sinner and takes the blow. And Jesus dies and the sinner lives. And then when the father sees his son dead, he relents and begins to love the sinner. What a silly, what a silly human way to think of it. No. Remember that the father and the son and the Holy Ghost feel the same about everything and are the same in their attitude toward everything. The reason the Son died for us is because the Father loved us. It is he loved us and gave himself for us. He didn't give himself for us in order that he might love us, nor he didn't give himself for us in order that the Father might love us. The Father loved us already and sent his Son to die for us. And when the Son died, the Father didn't love us anymore because he couldn't. He has loved us already with all the love of an absolutely limitless God, so that nothing that Jesus did for us on the cross made God love us anymore. It just made it possible for the love of God to flood over us and save us. But that love of God, like a mighty, limitless, boundless, shoreless ocean, had waited there for it to save us. And when Jesus died, he made an opening the shape of a cross, and in flooded that beautiful love of God which is limitless and which had been there all the time and saved a whole people and saved a church and saved everyone who will believe. So don't imagine that, that, that pagan idea of three persons, three gods, and the Father God angry and testy and churlish and mad at us and the Son loving us for some reason and the Son rushing in to save us. No, no. It was all he said, I lay my life down of myself. And he said, I lay my life down because my Father willed it to be so. It was the Holy Father in collaboration with the Holy Son by the Holy Ghost that caused Jesus to die on the cross. And it's written that he, the Son, offered himself through the eternal Spirit to God. There we have the three persons all engaged in redeeming mankind. It was the Father that received the offering. It was the Son who made it, and it was the Spirit through whom it was offered. So Father, Son, and Holy Ghost alike love us. And you cannot add to that love. If you only knew how much God loved you, you would fall on your face and sob with utter delight. He loves you, my brother and sister. And so the love of God is unchanging and the mercy of God is unchanging and everything about God is unchanging. So that every, every way God felt about anybody, he still feels about everybody. When Jesus Christ picked up a baby back there and put his hands on his little bald head and blessed it, why, uh, if he were to come back, he'd do exactly the same thing because he hasn't changed at all. I like to remember that when he was on earth, he had a little way of repeating things. Now, the theologians, of course, try hard to make something big out of this. He said, verily, verily, or he said, Martha, Martha, or he said, Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon. And then when he died and rose and was, went above, or at least was out of the grave, why, uh, he said, Simon, Simon, just the same. He still had his little, little human, his little idiosyncrasies. He was the same Jesus as he had been before. And he is because he's God. Now, things serve their end. You and I live in a changing world. We live in a world where the plant produces the flower, and the flower produces the seed, and then the plant and the flower die. And the seed is put in the ground, and it dies and brings forth a plant. 
and the plant brings forth the flower, and the flower fades away and brings forth the seed, and the seed goes back into the ground and dies, and it brings up a plant, and so it continues. The beautiful cycle of nature goes on and on and on. And if you could start here now with these flowers, you could go back and back and back and back to the time that God Almighty said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. You would find it so because everything changes. We live in a world of transmutation, a constant cycle of change. And then we come to the Bible, we find that there's change in the Bible. God had his Old Testament, and he had a, a, an order there. He had an economy, they call it, the Levitical economy. And the book of Hebrews beautifully explains how that changed. The uh, original priesthood was changed, into the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ the Lord. And the old sacrifice of bulls and goats was changed for the eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, some of our friends teach what they call a perpetual sacrifice, that Christ is sacrificed every time the Mass is said. And uh, that is, I suppose, an effort to perpetuate the efficacy of the dying of Jesus. But my brethren, we do not believe in a perpetual sacrifice. We believe in one sacrifice with perpetual efficacy. There is a difference. Death has no more dominion over him and he can't die anymore for he is immortal. But the sacrifice he made once for all has perpetual efficacy. Christ does not need to die Sunday morning in order that there might be blood to cleanse the saints when they come to church. He died once, and that blood has efficacy that can never cease. The efficacy of the cross of Christ is unto perpetuity, world without end. That's why I'm a Protestant and believe not in the repeated mass, but in the once-done sacrifice of Christ in, on the cross. And then the sacrifice changed, and the tabernacle changed to the eternal tabernacle, and the covenant changed, the old covenant, to the new, which remains forever. So that even God, in his working in, in through the scriptures, in his redemptive uh, operations, he didn't change, but they changed as he used them. And then finally, when Jesus came and died and rose and went to the right hand of God, everything got a period. You know, as an editor and writer, I have a lot to do with commas, semicolons, and colons, and dashes. I don't like dashes, but semicolons and colons and commas, they've got to be there. And as long as there's a comma, there's something else coming. But as soon as there's a period, everybody can wipe his dust off his hand and say, well, we're done. We finished that sentence. It's period. And Jesus Christ, when he came and said, it is finished, put periods after all those Old Testament sacrifices and all, said, this is no more now, this is it, this is it. Jesus Christ is enough. Now, if it's Dr. Brown, he'd be shouting, but being me, he'd just sit there like bumps on, on a fir tree. <laughs> and all things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. So when things change, remember, all things change, but God remains the same. When I was here two years ago, there was a beautiful little bird sanctuary out there, and I used to go out there every afternoon with my bird book and my binoculars, you know, and uh, watch the birds. But when I came this time, I went out there, and they've messed the whole thing up, and there's oil around there, and there isn't a bird be caught dead out there. 
so I don't grow up. They've changed it, you know. When I was back in the hills of Pennsylvania where I grew up, it was as beautiful as a fairyland. Little rivers and creeks and streams flew, flowed everywhere. And uh, the hills were covered with uh, second-growth timber and uh, green sward. That was a beautiful place. I went back there after being away for a few years, and I found the strip miners, the coal miners, had come in and stripped the top off of it to get a few little measly tons of coal. And they had absolutely wrecked the whole business. Poor Mother Nature was struggling to try to get things to grow again. It will take 20 years to get it green again. Man has a way of changing things. Things change. But all things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. Now, in these messages I've preached to you, and in the messages that i preach, Incidentally, I'm going to throw in a little bracket here, which I very rarely do. I think this is the second time in my life, or maybe third. But people come to me and say, are these sermons in print? Mostly I have to say no, because I can't possibly write all my sermons and put them in print. But this time I can say yes. These sermons on the being of God are in print, or they're being put into print now. Hoppers and Brothers in New York are bringing out a book of mine called The Knowledge of the Holy, The Attributes of God, and Their Meaning in the Christian Life. Remember the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It will have the stamp of Hoppers on it, or it will have the stamp of Christian Publications, for Christian Publications is getting an imprinted edition. So whether you see it, Hoppers or Christian Publications, it's the same book. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy, and it is a summation uh, of all these sermons that I have given over the country on the attributes of God. I mention that and hope the good brother will be kind enough to leave it in because if the people want to know uh, more about the being of God, I have tried to write it into that book. All right, now the, the self-sufficiency of God, I'll never have to change that sermon. And the, uh, the love of God, I'll never have to change that one. And the wisdom of God, I'll never have to change that because God changes not. I'll change. And there will be a day when they'll help me up to the platform, and I'll stand and wobble. Well, I wobble now, but I do it just because I'm nervous, not because I'm old. But there'll be a day when I, my wobbling will be pathetic to see. Now, that's because I'll change. But I have in my heart that which changes not. Jesus Christ lives in my bosom, and he changes not. And my spirit never changes nor grows old, except as it changes, I trust, from the worst to the better and grows better as the years go by, by the blood of the Lamb and the power of the Holy Ghost. So the eternity of God remains the same, and the immutability of God is the doctrine that guarantees that God will never change. You know, I've got to have a God that doesn't change because I'm so changeable. Uh, the, the, the poet and poem said, My heart is sick, sick of this everlasting change. But you know, a man wrote one time, Now rest my long divided heart, fixed on this blissful center, rest. Uh, I suppose we've sung that a lot, and we don't know what we mean. It'd be a good idea, and our brother here will hear me say this, and I know he agrees, it'd be a good idea that if occasionally we'd just read, he does it sometimes, just read a stanza and meditate on it and see what it really says. For often, even in Sunday morning, when we sing the good hymns, if we do, we don't know what they mean. Now listen to that one. Now rest my long divided heart, fixed on this blissful center, rest. Where'd he been all his life? He'd been out on the periphery, way out here where the things were spinning, you know. Then he moved into the center where there was no spin. And that center was God. 
he had found the blissful center that never changes. At the very heart, there is that which changes not. But as you move out from the center toward the circumference, toward the periphery, you, you speed up. There's more motion out here than there is in here because that's the law of nature. And we all live out on the periphery too much, way out there. You dear women, sometimes you meet yourself coming up the sidewalk. And uh, you've been all around so much, but as you move in, move in, move in toward the center, fixed on this blissful center, rest. Rest at last. Come unto me and I will give you rest. What kind of rest? The rest of being at that blissful center where nothing changes and nothing can be taken away from you that matters. Huh? Somebody asked me right here, Brother Tozer, are you Calvinist or an Arminian? Now, don't you wish you knew? Huh? Don't you wish you knew? I am a Calvinistic Arminian. And in, on good days, I'm an Arminian Calvinist. So that's what I am. But anyhow, there were two men, and they're both heroes of mine. One was Isaac Watts, and one was John Wesley. Isaac Watts was a Calvinist. I started to say Hyde Bond, but I won't say that. He was a Calvinist, a real Calvinist. You know, he wrote so many hymns. He was the greatest hymnist that ever lived, I think. Up to da- next to David. And uh, he, was a, he was a real Calvinist. Well, and there was another man who was a real Arminian. That was John Wesley. And they didn't agree at all, you know. One was away out here and one was away out here. But uh, the Arminian Wesley had a sneak in love of, of the Calvinist Watts hymns. And uh, he, he altered a few of them, and he altered them for the better. Rarely than an editor ever better to him, but Wesley did better some of Isaac Watts' hymns. Well, they tell this story about the Arminian Wesley, that he was dying. He was 83 years old, and he was dying. He'd travel 25,000 miles on horseback and preach four or five times a day for years, and it was about time for him to, to rest. So he was dying. And he'd lost his voice and only had a gurgle left in his voice, and they got down very close to hear what he was saying. And it, they found he wasn't saying anything he was singing. And what do you suppose he was singing? He was singing that old Calvinist hymn. I'll praise my maker while I've breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. He was just about to have that voice of his lost in death. But he was never going to stop praising God because there were nobler powers that lay within him, nobler than his tongue and his breath, and they were going forever to praise God. When the man, Nicholas Herman, who's known to us as Brother Lawrence, when he was dying, somebody came to him and said, Brother Lawrence, what are you doing? He said, I am doing what I shall be doing forever. I am worshiping my God and Father. So he wasn't going to change much there. He'd found that blissful center, and he was not changing. Now to go from a great hymn to one that's not quite so great, but very meaningful. Let me read you a few stanzas of a hymn we used to sing in the Alliance before we got the Jingle Boys took over and we began to sing all the junk. Uh, Here's one we used to sing. Here's one we used to sing. Any of you Jingle Boys that are present, don't look at me, because I didn't make you that way, God help you, and I don't know, can't imagine who did. Anyhow, uh, here's a song we used to sing in the old Locust Street Church in Akron, Ohio, when the church there had fire in it, lots of fire. When they lost their fire, they got a committee for publicity. 
and they tried to make up for their fire with a publicity committee, but it didn't work. They got ashes, not fire. Well, here's the song we used to sing. Come, sinners, to the living one. He's just the same Jesus as when he raised the widow's son, the very same Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask the superintendent if you ever heard it, and if you ever heard it, it dates him. Have you ever heard it? Uh, he's heard it. He's old. Come, sinner, come, sinner, to the living one. He's just the same Jesus as when he raised the widow's son, the very same Jesus. Then the chorus says, the very same Jesus, the wonder-working Jesus, oh, praise his name, He's just the same, the very same Jesus. He changes not. Come feast upon the living bread. He's just the same Jesus as when the multitudes he fed. The very same Jesus. Come tell him all your griefs and fears. He's just the same Jesus as when he shed those loving tears. The very same Jesus. Come unto him for clearer light. He's just the same Jesus as when he gave the blind their sight. The very same Jesus. Someday our raptured eyes shall see He's just the same Jesus. Oh, blessed day for you and me. The very same Jesus. The very same Jesus, the wonder-working Jesus. Oh, praise his name. He's just the same. The very same Jesus. Now, that's what the immutability of God means to me. I hope it'll mean that to you.